welcome back to Behind Our Door. Hi, Julie. Hello, Nancy. Good to see you. You also. Today we have a wonderful guest that is going to talk about a topic we have yet to touch upon that I really have so wanted to dive into. We have Tracy Murphy, a licensed clinical social worker who specializes uh, with the older population. And I don't know if it's geriatric psychiatry. We'll have to get it from Tracy exactly uh, what the terminology is. She works in different long-term care facilities and uh, acute stay situations and um, can't wait to hear what she has to say. And she's my friend. And she's Julie's (laughs) friend. Um, most important. That should and, tell you everything you need to know. Right. So welcome, Tracy. <laughs> welcome, so, Tracy. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. me. We're so glad you're here. Uh, sure. why, don't, why don't you start out by telling us how you got into this, how you got into this field and a little Okay. Bit. Well, that's a whole long story, but we'll wrap it up pretty short. So I'm a licensed, <laughs> um, and if at any point I'm talking too much or you want explanation, just stop me. Um, So I've been in the field about 25 years. Um, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, as you said. So I originally got into the field. I don't think I really had a choice. Um, Growing up, I was always the one that was helping everyone else. People would come to me for advice, and it was just natural for me to give it. Um, I didn't have the easiest of childhoods and kind of found myself having to figure out coping skills on my own and figuring out, okay, how do I get through this? Um, So I do have a personal history of domestic violence, sexual assaults, um, been in several relationships with addicted individuals, um, which really forced me to really look at who I was, who I was attracting, and what my mission was kind of in my life. And I tend to be a fixer. So what I've tried to do now in my great older age is not fix people in my relationships, but try to help others professionally rather than personally. Um, When I graduated with my master's from NYU, um, I was really interested in clinical work. Um, You kind of can go go different directions. You can go more administrative. You can go case management. Um, I really loved the idea of sitting with somebody and really hearing their life story and their experiences and trying to help them understand how all of those experiences, whether positive or negative, have helped lead them to where they are. And that life and how we handle it is not set in stone, um, that there are things we have control over. Um, in our lives and ways to really help them figure out what direction they want to go in. Um, So I've done many different things over the years. Um, I started out working with children um, in group homes. Then I worked with children in emotional um, disability education settings. Um, Then I worked with adults and inpatient. Then I started a private practice. I had a private practice for 12 years in New York, working with adolescents, adults, families, but really focused on mental health, really focused on um, kind of those developing different coping skills um, to handle really intimate crises, you know, whether it be personal or interpersonal. 
Um, so it can be everything from relationship issues to depression, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia, addiction. Um, and I really learned a lot about ways to interact with others as well as kind of ways to help myself, which is always kind of the background journey for all therapists. And if they tell you otherwise, they're lying. Sure. Um, and then I realized over the years that, you know, there was a, the, the system is broken. Um, we're missing a lot of those intermediate programs or those spaces in between. Um, so I was hired a few years ago um, at an agency where they trusted me to start my own program. And I was the program director and creator of an intensive outpatient program for adults that were in that in-between phase, between programs. So whether it was in between inpatient and intensive outpatient or in between individual therapy and didn't quite need hospitalization um, and really help them develop those skills to help themselves. Um, I moved to New York oh, almost four years ago now and was the clinical director of two different programs. One was a juvenile justice program. One was a substance abuse treatment center for adolescents. So I've kind of done a little bit of everything and about a year and a half landed in a position where I'm doing half of my work doing individual therapy with adults and a wide range of issues. And then the other half is working with the geriatric population um, in long-term care and acute rehab settings, doing cognitive evaluations and therapy with them and their families. And just realizing how much that system is so broken. Um, and it just breaks my heart. And sometimes I come home at the end of the day and just, you know, feel helpless, but also know that the time I spend with those people is for some of them, the only human contact they're getting besides a nurse coming in to give them medication or change their diaper. Um, so my heart. Oh, it, it totally hurts. I cry a lot. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Um, so when Julie was talking to me, you know, about the geriatric system, there are so many things that we still need to do better at. And I'm hoping, and I know there are, that there are other people like me that have the experience and expertise, but now we need the willingness to actually do it and make those changes. And there's things that families can learn along the way before they get to that point that individuals can start to think about long before you're ready for it. Because when you're ready for it, you're not always capable of making those decisions. And um, so it, I think it's really important that we start this process as early as possible. Sorry, go ahead. Is it is it um, are family members the one that that often contact you saying, uh, you know, looking for evaluation, or is it the no. the agents, the uh, long term facility? They have a list of a certain amount of people. Or yeah, so the agency I work with, we're contracted to go in, and we work with every new admit that comes in they at least get an evaluation. So whether or not there's something flagged or not, they you speak to yes. every new individual coming into yes. long term. Because not everyone has a diagnosis right. and not everyone needs to be yeah. diagnosed and that's not everybody great. needs therapy. I'm but, surprised. And that's really that's a good thing. I mean it's mm -hmm. oh, absolutely. that you you know sometimes you feel like there's such a short 
a shortage of resources, including having a therapist come for a certain amount of hours a week to a certain long-term care facility, you would think that they would just, you would just say, we only have time for the ones that are really having some red flags. Yeah. But the fact that you assess every incoming is really impressive. Uh, there's a lot. It of is, and I, I give a lot of credit to the company I work for, um, for that. They've done a great job with that, that because sometimes people, there's a quote unquote, di- I hate diagnoses. They're just insurance labels. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a diagnosis called adjustment disorder, which I think everyone that comes into some of these facilities <laughs> gets automatically, right? Yeah. Because you are adjusting to a whole new way of life, right? Yeah, You're used to being at normal. home in your comfortable bed with your chair, with either your family, your pets, your environment, your friends. Even if you weren't successful living there, it's still your home. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now you've been plucked out, usually gone to a hospital first, something went wrong. So you fell, you injured yourself, you've got cognitive issues, you're no longer able to take care of your basic needs. And now you're in this facility where, let's face it, they're not the cleanest all the time. You don't get the attention you need. They're understaffed. The food yeah, depending on where you go, it looks yeah. pretty nasty. And it's, so, yeah. It's also, um, I would think, a baseline uh, before people have other health issues that can cause some of the things I'm sure you'll get into telling us the certain diagnoses for these uh, seniors oh, yeah. and beyond. Well, you've got people that come in relatively mentally healthy. Yeah, that's what That develop depression and anxiety and you know, we have to understand the mind-body connection that, you know, somebody with intense depression and anxiety, that affects your whole body system, that affects your heart, that affects your respiratory system, that yeah. affects your cognition, um, your digestive tract, that's everything. And I've seen more people go downhill so quickly just from that change of environment and that depression and the loneliness. Yeah, that's, that's so sad to hear. Really tough. For our um, behind our door family that's listening, I think we need to different, differentiate the difference between dementia, Alzheimer's, and and mental actual mental health issues. Are they all the same? No, um, absolutely not. Okay, and also adding into that delusions. Okay, well you've got so you really need a professional to do the evaluation. Okay, don't just make the well, I Googled, da, 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 okay? Um, I don't know if anyone is familiar with who's writing social media content, okay? Um, but they're normally young kids at a college doing social media marketing, writing the content. They're not doctors sitting there writing the Google ads. Right. So they're getting information typically from other Google ads and adding it. So you want to look at reputable places, Right. So your WebMD, don't go to WebMD. Um, You want to go to things like Mayo Clinic. You want to go to Cleveland Clinic. You want to go to those reputable places to get your information, okay? And actually go to a professional or have a professional come in to do the evaluation, okay? So dementia can look 10,000 different ways, okay? So we're really, with beginning dementia, it's that memory loss. It's that confusion. It's, oh, where are my keys? Oh, they're in my hand. Or wait, 
who are you? I, I know I know you, but I'm not placing the face. Okay. It can also come with depression and anxiety. Um, it can come with hallucinations, but not all the time. Okay. They can either come and go or they don't have to be present at all. There are so many different presentations of dementia. So we have to be really careful when throwing that word around. Alzheimer's is a very specific condition that is neurologically based. It can actually be seen on an MRI, okay? It affects the entire front portion of the brain and starts to shut down the neuro neurological processes. So they cannot actually function in certain areas. They forget how to feed themselves. They forget how to walk. They get lost. They lose bladder um, control. Um, they become incontinent. They can become really agitated. It changes their personality and their moods. Um, so you just, it's a very specific diagnosis. And of course, we've got mild, moderate, severe in all of these cases. Okay. So there's not a cookie cutter diagnosis of what this looks like. You used to hear, oh, this is a textbook case. There's no such thing as a textbook case of anything because everything can look different. That's really yeah. interesting, this statement. Yeah, so you're, so what you're saying is that if you feel that your parent or whomever you're caregiving for is experiencing some of these, it's- Go to a best, neurologist. Yeah, it's best to get a medical professional involved. Yeah, go straight to a neurologist, them. get a CAT scan, get an MRI, and really see what's going on. Blood work is also so important because something as simple as a UTI, yeah. if not treated so, properly, can look like dementia. Oh, that's interesting. It's so, so interesting, you... that connection. I, I have older parents that are in a senior living place, and uh, I've been there a lot visiting with them, and I see so many different situations with people in general and talking to the staff, who's fantastic, um, that recently learning that UTIs can be connected to that. You would never oh, get absolutely. connected to the brain with... Yeah, uh, UTIs can and... cause confusion. They can cause hallucinations. They can Very cause coordination issues, mm -hmm. speech issues, forgetfulness, and it can mimic a lot of other diagnoses. So you want to make sure you get a urine sample, you want to get a blood test, and you want to get that neurological exam. That's good advice. In, in your professional opinion, do you feel like the geriatric population that you're seeing had some underlying mental health issues and they became exacerbated because of the now, I don't want to say inpatient stay, but you know, most of the time there's a lot of families who can't caregive for them and they end up in these nursing homes. Um, or do you feel like it's brought on because of being in there? I mean, I, I know it's about 50, 50, yeah. you know, it really depends. I mean, nowadays depression, antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds are handed out like candy. So as soon as you go to your medical doctor and you say that you feel sad sometimes, they're throwing a Lexapro at you, right? So a lot of these people are coming in on antidepressants or anti-anxiety meds, and maybe it's helpful and maybe it's not. And that's where the evaluation has to come in. Um, because your medical doctor, as wonderful as they're thinking they're being, they are not a psychiatrist and mm -hmm. they are not a mental health professional. 
and they're just treating a symptom, but they're not treating the underlying condition. And not all depression or anxiety needs pill. Sometimes it needs therapy. You know, a lot of people underestimate talk therapy. You know, my own father will say to me on occasion, oh, you just talk to people for a living. And it's like, no, there's, there's a science here. <laughs> there's, there's, there's actually a process, right. you know, and that evaluation process is so important to be able to teach people coping skills because but, it's not taught in schools. It's not taught in college. Nobody knows how to take care of their mental health. Right. Yeah, that's the point uh, that you just were mentioning about your your fa father looking at your profession. That I would think is another issue of that generation mm -hmm. with the stigma. Yes, um, I had run oh, yeah. support groups in a in a hospital, a Chicagoland Hospital, for uh, a while, and some of the people. One of the groups was older older folks, spouses, etc. Some some children, uh, adult children, for their uh, whoever it was that was struggling. And one of the biggest problems was, you know, someone 80 and over, you know, thinking, I'm not going to a shrink. I can't, you mm -hmm. know, it doesn't do anything. And um, how how do you find that? Do you, do you think this is getting better? Do you think the stigma with older people is going in a better direction? Or is it still, or is it, I should ask you, a problem to convince someone to talk to someone in the first place? I think it's all about presentation. I never present myself as a therapist. And I know there are therapists that will walk in and say, hi, I'm a mental health professional, or I'm a psychologist, or I'm a therapist, and I'm here to talk to you about your problems. No, I don't do that. I walk in and I say, hi, everybody else here is worried about your physical health. And I'm here to worry about your emotional health, because these places can be all sorts of frustrating and lonely and depressing. And sometimes you just need to vent and talk mm -hmm. about it. So do you ever experience that? Do you ever get frustrated that somebody isn't coming when you want them to, or you get lonely at night, or maybe you can't reach your family member when you really need to talk? Let's talk about that. So I don't come in with wearing my therapist hat. I come in wearing my, hey, I'm here to talk to you and give you an outlet as somebody that you can just vent to, right? Because I think as soon as I mention, oh, I'm working for a psychologist, they shut down. They're, I don't need you. I'm not crazy. Mm -hmm. I go, well, either am I, but I'm here. So <laughs> let's talk about it, right? So then it becomes, okay, well, why are you here? Tell me what's going on. Who do you normally live with? What's that like? Are you missing that environment? Oh, you're missing your wife's pancakes? Oh, my goodness. I totally understand that. You know, these people are married 60, 70 years. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, either they're a recent widow or, you know, their spouse can't help them. They can't carry them. They can't respond to them as well. Their kids live far away. Or the saddest ones are that they don't have anybody. Yeah. And they're there and they're sitting in this hospital bed and nobody's coming to visit them. And, you know, that it, it's heartbreaking. And, you know, say to them, okay, what have you got to live for? What's making you get up in the morning? Nothing. I need to see what happens on Judge Judy, you know, and that those are the people we really look out for. I love that you're doing that, though, because I, I don't think you're alone in that. I think we're getting wiser as, 
you know, generations progress mm-hmm. and, and intervening more with, with our, our seniors, our elderly, our geriatric population, whatever you want to call them. Um, I also feel like, you know, my, my dad is 84. So in their generation, um, they didn't even know anything about mental health. So yeah. it doesn't surprise me. Like I had an aunt who was diagnosed in her late seventies, um, suffering from bipolar disorder. And, and sadly, uh, she passed quickly after that. But, you know, it's interesting to look back at her life because then all the family members were like, oh yeah, now all the things that she was doing, her behaviors were making sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the the older generation, even not so old, it's the pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, there's no such thing as depression. That's, we all that's get sad sometimes. Parent was. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's that's about, really... okay, it's finding that motivation to get up. And what is the difference between depression and sadness? Mm-hmm. What is the difference between being nervous and having an anxiety condition? What's the difference between, okay, some days I'm sad, some days I'm happy versus some days I'm suicidal and some days I'm manic, right? Because those are really big differences that, you know, we don't want to just throw around, oh, I'm feeling depressed today. No, that's not just a state of mind, right? right? It's a real chemical reaction. Um, So, you know, I do think that some of these mental health conditions are diagnosed too quickly. And, you know, we can't say that everybody's depressed. Some people have adjustment disorders. Some people are just freaking sad, you know, and we have to realize what's what, right? But family members, you know, need to understand as their loved ones get older, their life has changed dramatically, right? We think about the different decades that they've lived through, right? So even like losing people around them, their friends, they're they're losing people around them. They're losing physical capabilities. Mm -hmm. They now have these limitations that they never had before. People might've been really active and working 70 hours a week, and now they can't get out of a chair, Right. right? Their friends are passing away or they're stuck at home because they can't get out to play cards or they can't go to the senior center or, you know, their spouse has passed or their spouse is sick, you know, and we have to be really cognizant and really aware of the different stages in their life. You know, we all go through different kind of identity crises, right? So the shift between high school and college is one, mm-hmm. the shift from being uh, college to all of a sudden you're on your own or high school mm-hmm. to on your own. And then you've got the shift of, oh my goodness, I'm an adult, right? How many times have I looked around and go, I needed a more adultier adult than me <laughs> to tell me what to do, Yes. right? Because I don't know what I'm doing. There's no handbook for this. And now you've got, they've had this long career in whatever they're doing. They've been married. They've had children. They've had friends. And now they're retired. Okay, that's another huge shift. And now you go from being retired, doing whatever you were doing, to you're physically incapacitated. Yeah. And you're either stuck in a bed, you're stuck in a wheelchair, you've got a walker, or you're sitting there playing bingo. You don't know how many geriatric men I see and they're like, I hate bingo. 
<laughs> and that's what these places have to offer, right? And they're like, I don't want to play bingo. I hate it, right? So we have to think about different activities that they're going to be interested in, whether it's a group setting or it's individual. You know, a lot of these places, if they have more funding available, are presenting their residents with either iPads um, mm. to play solitaire or read books like Kindles. Um, word games are really important. Trivia games, things like mm. that. And if they can get out into like an activity room doing trivia, even something as simple as hangman, you got to get the brain going. Bingo right. is mindless. And right? also we something have... something central, centrally located to pull them out of their rooms and yes. have them get together instead of yes. isolating in one. Yeah. And even concert. something as simple as food, mm -hmm. right? When you're giving people food that the prisoners wouldn't eat in a jail, mm -hmm. uh, you got to look at that. Would you eat it? Like sometimes I'll go into the room and they'll, they'll I have one guy, I love him to death, and he'll lift up his tray and goes, would you eat that? He's <laughs> like, absolutely not. I don't even know what it is. You know, so I can't blame him for losing weight. But then they start to lose weight and then they have other functions that fail. Right. So everything is circular. Everything is connected. But for, for those that are like for those families who are dealing with severe crisis in their mm -hmm. parents or whoever they're caregiving for, I mean, what what do you do? Do you do you find a home for them? I hate using the term home, but facility um, yeah, yeah. Facility. look it's a it's a really hard decision um and families go through a lot and there are so many times i'm working with the family members in the hallway because they're like i feel guilty my mom took care of me for all these years but i have to go to work i have to take right. care of my kids and my wife and, and expense, i can't sit there expense yeah of, it, oh it's crazy it's having people come in to help and you know I, yeah. the add-ons add up and these facilities are not cheap either mm -hmm. you know you have to remember that they're going to take medicaid they're going to take medicare but if you've got an income coming in they're going to take it um if you've got money in the bank you got to be careful because these facilities they're a business they're a business first, and you have to remember that their job is to make money. Yes, they're in the human service field where they're helping people, but they're making money by helping people. So you want to look for a place that is A, affordable, but B, has staff that are certified and really care about the population. And if you are a family member dealing with, you know, the decision, you know, you have to weigh your options. Are you able to take care of them in the home? Are you able to afford somebody coming in? If not, find a location that is clean, is safe, that you can visit. Because if you can't visit, there's no eyes on them. Yeah, that's right. a red I hate flag. to say it, mm -hmm. and I, the nurses and the CNAs work so hard, but some of them are not in the right business. Right. They're there for a paycheck, and unless somebody's watching, I've had people in diapers for seven hours not get changed, you know, and it's the heartbreaking part of this. So family members need to be actively involved. Don't think that you're going to send them there, and they're going to get 
100% exceptional care unless it's a private pay facility. So you have to continue, you're saying that you have to continue to advocate for okay. your family member, even though they're living in a place that yeah. supposedly covers it all. So, Absolutely. In fact, I would, I would up the advocating. That's important advice. I would increase visits. I would increase conversations with their doctors. Increase your conversations with your loved one. Ask mm -hmm. those hard questions. You know, are you getting changed? Are you getting showered? What's the food like? Right? Are you able to sleep at night or is your next door neighbor screaming at three o'clock in the morning? Right? And those are questions we're afraid to ask. I think a lot of times because we're afraid of the answer. Because then if we get a no, now what? Now what do we do? Yeah. I mean, when you were talking about screaming in the hallway, it made me think of when when you're dealing with somebody who has severe mental health issues, can they refuse taking medication? Yes. So do you then, are they then placed with the, the general population? Yes. In these facilities? Yeah. And so there's different levels of care in some of these facilities. You've got your acute care, which is short term. Those are people that have broken a hip, mm -hmm. who have fallen, who are there for a few weeks, usually 20, 21 days, and then they're sent home, right? And then you've got your more, they call them acute to long-term, right? Where it's gonna take a little bit longer. So people that have experienced a stroke or really need more rehab, amputees, um, due to diabetes or falls or injuries. And then you've got your long-term, which are people that are just not able to take care of themselves at home, right? So these different levels of care, you know, they can refuse medications. They're adults. The trouble is if they start to be viewed as a quote-unquote troublemaker, that's going to affect their care. I wish it didn't. But it is. They're going to be placed on a memory care unit, which is for dementia or Alzheimer's. And people kind of give up. And they're like, okay, well, if you're going to continue to scream, then we're moving you out of sight, out of mind, right? Rather than somebody really sitting with them, nobody's going to come in and hold their hand and calm them down unless you have a really great nurse. So you're saying there's no crisis workers in within any of these facilities aside from if they contract one uh, to visit? It's limited. It's it's very limited. I mean, the company I work for, I mean, we're there once a week, you know, so there's typically two, sometimes three therapists that, you know, rotate throughout the week and one psychiatrist um, that is there once a week. So after uh, evaluation, you have a certain group that you go in to see that's, of course, ever-changing. But you have, you yes. have these assessments, like the beginning of this conversation, mm -hmm. and when somebody is just an incoming new resident, and mm -hmm. you decide if they need ongoing therapy or not, and you know, evaluate, you know, continue after that, and some don't, and some do. So yes. you go once a week to these facilities for counseling yes. of some sort. Yeah. So I've got two different levels. Well, I've three. So I've got my evals that are just straight eval. And then I have my follow-ups and the follow-ups are divided into two. I've got my follow-ups with permission and follow-ups without. Okay. So my follow-ups with permission are a therapy session. I'm going in 
they want to talk. They want to learn things. They we're working on coping skills. We're working on that adjustment, right? We're working on their symptom management, right? And then you've got your people that really need to be monitored, but have said, I don't want therapy, right? So then I go in, it's a five minute little check-in and it's, hey, how you doing? Are you sleeping? I go through my checklist. Are you sleeping? Are you eating? Are you feeling agitated? Do you feel like hurting yourself? Um, You know, are you feeling any depression or anxiety? Do you need any medication? If it's no, then I leave. If it's yes, then it's okay. Can you tell me a little more about that? And then sometimes they'll agree to then put on my therapy list. And sometimes it's no, I don't want to talk to you. I'm angry. I'm agitated. And then I contact the psychiatrist and say, hey, you need to go in and adjust that medication. Now, if if somebody answers you in that, you know, session you're speaking of, five minutes, yes, I would hurt my, I feel as though I could hurt myself. So in, an, in an emergency room, that admits somebody to inpatient care almost immediately. Same adolescent, thing with us. Adolescent to adult. Same thing with us. So do you take, do they then leave the setting and go to an inpatient yes. hospital? They're taken yes. to the hospital. Okay. Yes, we do. In, I'm in Florida at the moment and we do what's called the Baker Act. And um, what is that? Um, where we involuntarily admit um, some a psychiatric unit of a hospital. Or if they're not quite ready for that, we can put them on call, what's called a one-to-one, which is that an aide or someone will sit with them 24-7 to make sure that they will not hurt themselves. You mean in the facility they're living in? And then that person is evaluated daily in the facility. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it doesn't sit right. It's it's a it's a hard it's a really hard decision as a therapist to go in because you don't want to see somebody you know go through this and then some people you know they're on the edge of death's door anyway I've got people say you know what I'm 97 and I'm in excruciating pain no I don't have anything to live for right if I had the means yeah I would end it and there's a point where we go yeah I don't really blame you I get it. But how serious are they? So we do kind of on that scale from one to 10. Yeah. Keep it in perspective. You know, do they have the means? You know, if we have a 97 year old woman who wants to end her life, but the only way she's going to do it is, you know, to overdose herself, but she doesn't have any access to medications. She's not a high risk. She's somebody we have to watch, but I'm not going to put her in a psych hospital. Yeah. And you have to be careful about that too. That's a whole nother to change the environment oh, yeah. for five days oh, yeah. like that is right. a risk. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole different conversation. Uh, exactly. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes. Whole different podcast. I don't, I don't know how um, the nursing facilities are down in Florida, but I know here in Illinois, when you have someone who has severe mental health issues that admits them to nursing facilities pretty quickly and age is not a factor. So now you're combining different age groups together, which I, I don't know if that's good or bad, to be honest with you. Um, I sometimes think if they're the only one who is young with, you know, a whole senior population, yeah. that can be very, very it's devastating. Rough. Devastating. The trouble is, is that about 10 years ago, our population shifted away from psychiatric institutions. Okay, for 
mostly good reasons because people were being brought there and then left and forgotten. However, there are people that are still in need of 24-hour care Mm -hmm. um, that are severely um, ill. You know, they have these severe mental health issues and they need that care. And when you put, let's say, a 35, 40-year-old with schizophrenia in with 80, 90-year-olds, that's devastating. It's devastating to their identity. It's going to cause an increase in depression and anxiety and probably exacerbate their symptoms of the schizophrenia or whatever that underlying diagnosis is. Right. um, Because now you've added stress. So it's, I don't believe in it. I don't agree with it. Um, And I think at some point, hopefully soon, mental health will be put as a priority again and we'll reestablish some of those types of facilities. So necessary, increasingly necessary. Yes. I mean, I I truly feel like there's so many families at home just taking this upon themselves, taking care of their, Mm -hmm. you know, elderly parents and um, some with mental health issues, some with not mental health issues, and it, it can be a, a struggle and a lot oh, of absolutely. pressure. And, have, and you've got that sandwich generation, you yeah, know, which is right. taking care of the elderly is, and, and their parents yeah. and then taking care of their children. Yeah. Right. So you can what, be spread really thin. What would you advise family members that are listening to this that are thinking, I think that I'm a, that we're at this stage where I have to tell my mother or my father to, you know, think about going into one of these places and the person is just, you know, thinking they're just going to resist. Do you have any suggestions, any kind of verbiage to, you know, you such I love the way you put it when you walk in someone's room and make it more inviting to talk to you. Do you have any advice for the family member? Yeah. Talking I to think that you, parent? you have to make it a conversation not a directive, right? This needs to be, okay, at this point in your life, you know, what are your goals? What are you working towards? How are, how best can we work towards that together, right? Because if they're feeling like you're just going to stick them away somewhere and forget about them, yeah, nobody's going to want to go. But if you're like, okay, you want to get involved in activities, you know, I think to go from a home setting straight to a long-term care could be devastating. You need some steps along the way. So hopefully you can catch it early enough where you can do like a senior center first mm-hmm. or an assisted living. A day or something. So yeah. In a day. Mm-hmm. And then pick them up at the end or an assisted living where they live there, but they don't need nursing care 24-7, right? Assisted, there's a big difference between assisted living and long-term care facilities, mm-hmm. right. right? Assisted living, they have kind of their own like an apartment setting, but they'll go downstairs or to the dining room for meals, right? But they can still mostly take their medications on their own. Um, They're not delirious. They're not hurting themselves. They're not like wandering aimlessly um, where they can still pretty much function as an individual on their own. And they can also probably have an apartment with some of their own things, you know, moving into a place where independent, but they can have some some things from their home that will make it feel like Yeah. My suggestion is really start the conversation as early as possible. Great suggestion. Right. So So when your parents are in their 60s, 
70s, still <laughs> mentally healthy. I, I wish know. You could like, Nancy's I hope face my right now. listening. No, I get it. My parents, my parents okay. are in their early 70s, still very, very active, right? Living on their own in a community. Um, they're doing their own thing. They're busier than I will ever be in my life, right? But we've started that conversation of what are those expectations, right? What are you looking for? What do you want, right? So my mom will be like, I just want some place that I can do games and mahjong and da, 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 da. And my dad's like, just stick me on an island, and leave me alone, right? So you've got two totally different views, but we have so to be- To have it or to have this conversation. Yeah, you have really to is. have those conversations and you have to say, okay, what's expected? You know, are you expecting to live with me? Are you expecting me to come live with you? Are you expecting to go into an assisted living? Are you expecting to wither away at home? And I hate the way I just phrased that, but you know, everybody wants different things. You know, what are the goals? What do you want to accomplish? If something happens, what would you like me to do? Let's look at the finances. Let's see what is available. Smart. Let's make sure it's realistic. Right. And they're really hard conversations. I'm not saying they're easy, but the sooner you have them, and I would have them every couple of years, because the same way I don't like certain foods one week and then a couple of months later, I love them. Right. Their opinions may change. They may say, you know what? I really don't want that anymore. I really want this. Um, so I would continue to have that conversation every once in a while and make sure that that's still what they want. And if you're not able to do something, you need to say it. Right. So if they're, if your mom or your dad is saying, well, I'm going to live with you. And you say, well, I live in a one bedroom studio. That's not going to happen. Right. Let's be really realistic and have those hard conversations while somebody is still cognitively able to Great and advice. able to really talk about it. Um, because the sooner you have those conversations, it kind of relaxes things. And, and um, I, I feel I, like there really are good resources, you know. In oh, absolutely. There's tons of them. Small. It's, you know, I think it's one of the uh, one of the best advancements of my lifetime having, you know, looking as a kid at these, you know, as nursing homes. It was awful places that, you know, had a, had a connotation of they're awful to it's. It's a new social life. It's a way oh, yeah. to have, you know, new friends and community and people that are going through losing family members or losing their friends, their peers as they get older. Yeah. But are all, these visit are, them. are all these facilities set up for people who have mental health issues? No. So no, they're not. They're That's life. what you they're have, to really, if you you have, have to really healthy, think about it. Healthier elderly people that you're taking care of, that sounds like a great option. But what if, you know, my parent is diagnosed with some underlying mental health issues, bipolar, schizophrenia, mm -hmm. anxiety, you know, OCD, whatever you, whatever have you, um, can I go to these facilities and check them out and give them their diagnosis? Absolutely. And, Absolutely. And you need to then, check them out ahead of time. Bring your parent with them. you. Yeah. And, Bring your parent again, with like, you. Have them for, walk around. For and senior it, living. Well, yeah. they Again, like you're saying, what Julie's asking, the earlier the better. I mean, somebody yeah. can have a diagnosis for many years. They're, you know, a huge part of their life of having schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. Um, the earlier the better because 
you know, they're, they're get, they have medication They're It's under control to some yeah. degree because I'm assuming. But what if it's not under control? That's what I'm asking. Well, does, we're talking that about, okay. That's a great question. We're talking about healthier adults and having conversation, but, mm-hmm. but I'm talking about the, the parents that are suffering from mental health disorders who, yeah, who so need the more who, severe um, and more symptomatic. You want to look at what's called memory care and I hate that, but they do end up kind of going into that type okay. of unit. More great advice. Okay. That's, that's a good. Yeah. That's what I, that was, I didn't mean okay. to cut you off, but no, that's, that's, that's good, what I was looking question. for because we're, you know, we keep focusing on healthy adults and maybe have some depression, anxiety issues, but I'm talking about people who have more severe mental health issues. Can mm-hmm. they go to a senior living facility? Yes. And how is that evaluated? You know, if they're doing okay, great. And then if they fall off the wagon and they stop taking medication or participating in therapy, how is, what does that intervention look like? How does the family intervene? Does the care facility intervene? Does the senior facility intervene? Yeah, they do. And if, if they're not capable of taking care of them, then they're going to recommend other places. But okay. family members need to do their homework. So if you know you've got a parent with bipolar, with schizophrenia, with some of the more um, even severe depression or anxiety, right? right? Right. So you want to ask those questions because somebody can be stable for a long, long time. Right. And when they get older, their hormones change, their chemistry yes. changes, they lose weight. All of a sudden that dose is either too much or not enough, mm-hmm. right? Some people become medication resistant because they're put on medications that counteract, right? So we have to look at all of that. You have to learn to ask those really hard questions. Um, You can also go to an attorney and get a power of attorney. I was wondering Um, about that for these. Yeah. Yeah. So, and do it before someone is Mm -hmm. not capable and you can put in there, you know, this is not for now while I'm healthy. This is for when a doctor deems me incompetent Um, and put it in writing, put their wishes in writing the same way we get wills done, Mm -hmm. their wishes in writing so that you have it, you have that outline, you have that guideline and it's there and you don't even have to think about it. And I hate to say it and it gets really morbid, do the same thing with funeral plans, Right. right? Do the same thing with, okay, do you want to be buried? Do you want to be cremated? You know, what do you want? What do you want this to look like? Right? Because a lot of people don't have those discussions. And I've seen more families in the facilities, their loved one passes away and they're like, okay, now what? Right. What did they want? I don't know. Do you have a plot? Oh, no. Okay. And now you're scrambling around while you're dealing with your emotions of grief and loss. Yeah. So just get everything planned out in advance. As and much as are, as much as you they're can. They're really hard. They're really hard conversations. Um, and if you need to set up an appointment with a therapist, do a family session. Let That's the nice. therapist be the one to mediate that conversation. And it may take a few sessions, but they'll know how to direct the conversation, keep it on track. And if somebody gets too emotional, be able to kind of calm them down and bring them back to focus. And and it's easier having an objective person at times. Oh, absolutely. The conversation right. when you feel like, how am I going to dive into this? Yes. Um, that's really yes. great advice as well. When you're talking about power of attorney, and I know we're getting short on time, but when you're talking about power of attorney, 
what if you don't have that in place? And what if your loved one is in just a senior senior living and for whatever reason, you know, they they kind of start to unravel. How do you get a power of attorney in place to then get them into a memory care facility or get them yeah. added service? So that's where a psychiatrist comes in and a psychiatrist or a therapist will do an evaluation. And that's where it's called a brief, it's a BIMS. I forget what it stands for. Um, something mental health screening. I don't know. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, I just call it a BIMS. Mm -hmm. And it's your basic mental health screening. And then you go into your cognitive eval to make sure that somebody is able to make decisions for themselves. And if they're not, then they're going to put it in their notes and you can bring that to the court. But they, then they'll be deemed incompetent to make their own decisions. And then... Do they have psychiatrists on staff at senior living places that you're aware of in these senior facilities? Or are um, they usually more... assisted living centers will have somebody on contract that will come in okay. um, certain days during the week or the month. Um, the long-term care facilities should have the same thing. Um, your senior centers probably will not. Okay. Um, the senior so... centers are usually daytime. They're day programs. Yeah. But okay. if you're thinking about if somebody's living with you and you're worried about that, you go to a neurologist. Okay. Good advice. And also a neurologist, I suppose, for the person who's resistant to having sitting down with a therapist, they would then have another choice of a doctor, a neurologist. Absolutely. That objective person be that. Absolutely. And that becomes an MD as opposed to a right. psych MD. Right. I mean, it might make them feel safer. So overall, yes. I think you're with so many of these points. Again, the best advice is to start early to not have it to take away from the awkward. How am I going to do this situation? And Absolutely. with the mental health side of it all, same thing of just um, evaluate, have someone evaluated as, as early as possible. One yes. thing I learned in the recent years is that with these senior living situations, um, when people procrastinate to get into one of these, you know, they're thinking maybe we should do it, maybe not. And they wait, they have to have a physical to get placed on a certain floor or a level of Yes, care. and there may be a waiting and, list. And there may be a wait, plenty of times there are waiting lists. Uh, I know that all mm -hmm. over the Chicago area, but yeah. um, you know, the same thing with somebody with mental health struggles and mental a history of mental illness to have them evaluated when they're when things are under control to some degree. They take their medication. They, um, you know, are living even on their own, let's say mm -hmm. that to have them go in to be evaluated and think about even entering on a level where they can even be more social with people. The whole thing is Absolutely. more controllable. Absolutely. And to get them to um sign that power of attorney while they're they're stable and yes and you want to you want it to be a conversation like i mm -hmm. said you don't want this to be a directive you right. want it to for them to feel that they're still in control of their life um i know we're running out of time i do want to give one piece of advice that is probably 95 percent overlooked with our geriatric population and it has nothing to do with mental health it actually has to do with physical health if you have an adult living with you 
that is prone to falling, okay, or you're worried about them falling. A lot of people install grab bars, right? You install grab bars in your showers Mm -hmm. or in the hallway, things like that, but they're installing them at the wrong height level. People will do a, a grab bar waist level high. What you need to remember is that when somebody falls, they are on the ground. So they cannot lift themselves up and reach that grab bar that's hip high. You want at least a few places within the home to have a grab bar that is about six inches to a foot off the ground so that they can lift themselves up, prop themselves up and slide maybe to get a phone or something like that. You want something accessible. Mm-hmm. I have learned in the course here that those grab bars is, are essential. Mm-hmm. I've also had, I learned from one of the psychiatrists that um, they always recommend that you install a home phone low to the ground. Mm-hmm. Very uh, interesting. In a few different parts of the house or the room or wherever so that they can reach a phone to call 911 because you've got people that fall that cannot get to a phone and they're there for days. Yes, yes. And it's heartbreaking. Although so you, you can install those grab them. bars or those phones. Smart speakers too. Smart speakers. The Alexas are great. Yeah. Hey Alexa, call 911. Well, Alexa doesn't like call 911. Let me No, but if you, you can connect it to your phone. You can connect it oh, to if, the if security have, system. So just because we're on this topic, I've been working doing this with with my father. That's why I'm so knowledgeable about it. Um, you have to have a smartphone. So someone like my yes. dad, who is 84, does not have a smartphone. Right. So it doesn't work. However, I have found out that um, Google Nest mm-hmm. will call 911. You can pre-program yeah. your address in it, and they will send out help. Now, have we tried that yet? Knock on wood. No, we have not. But I'm just telling you from experience and my my own personal research. And if I'm wrong, please let us know. No, no, no. You know, no. You know um, what? It's different in different places. Right. Um, and I love it. The more information out there, the right. best. But video cameras are key too. But video yeah. cameras everywhere. A lot of them have motion detection. And then uh, if you can, you know, get those things they have to wear around their neck yeah, the, or, or watch. neck or wrist. Yeah. The, the watch. Yes. Water, waterproof. You can even wear it in the shower. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow, this has been eye-opening oh, and great information, you're Tracy. Terrific. Yeah. Tracy, this was Thank just you. such a, uh, a a terrific wealth of information. I'm sure people are going to li- re-listen with a pen and paper for this because you have so many important suggestions that are uh, really going to put somebody on a better path. Yeah. We can't thank you enough for coming. Thank oh, you. of course. And thank contact you, AARP, your senior resources. Um, Medicaid offices, um, a lot of them will have geriatric assistance. Great. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you for having me. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at behindourdoor@mail.com. That's behindourdoor@mail.com. And please don't forget to like and share our podcast. Um, Leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing. We really want your feedback. It's important to us. We are so thankful that you are here and listening to us.
If you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.